This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the Coast and Country download from the BBC. You can find the terms and conditions on our website at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. Today, you can hear Open Country. I'm standing looking at the chimney of an old mill. The red and orange brickwork is somehow really fitting in this this setting of fields in autumn. The colours so autumnal and the the changing leaves in, in a few of the trees, although some of them are still hanging on to their greenness. My eyes tell me I'm in some sort of rural paradise. In reality, and you might be able to hear it in the background from the hum of cars, the fact is I'm only three miles from the city centre of Birmingham, Britain's second biggest city. I'm at Sarehole Mill, just next to Molesley Bog and Joyswood Nature Reserve. Or perhaps I should say, I'm actually in Tolkien's Shire, but more about that later. It was a kind of lost paradise. There was an old mill that really did grind corn with two millers, a sandpit and a wonderful dell with flowers. this little also lovely red brick building which was very much part of the mill because often people think as a, of a mill as an individual building it's actually not it's often a complex of buildings and the building here was very much part of it this used to be the old stables I see. because of course the miller especially the victorian miller he milled tons of wheat had lots of flour and was bringing this to the bakers so, so he, he needed, needed horses, horses and right. a cart irene Debeau, you're the, the curator and and manager of, of the mill that yes. you're describing yes. now. And we're just walking uh, around. It, it feels like I should be in some sort of, I don't know, rural paradise or yes. something. But the sound yes. of the cars there in the background, they, they do give the lie to that. They, do. they, they, they do. remind yes. us that we yes. are only three miles away yes. from Birmingham city centre, we which, are. which seems yes. extraordinary yes. as we stand here. Yes, we are along the River Cole, and if you would look on the map of Birmingham. It's like a large green ribbon sort of going through the city and we are part of that. So we are what we call the Shire Country Park. It relates to sort of Tolkien who yes. also thought it was a paradise like yes, you just said. I, I suppose we're in the original Shire here aren't we? we? Are. Tolkien's yes, Shire. Yes. If you look behind you about 100 yards that way that's where he used to live and when he used to live here some of these high trees that are now luckily for us hiding the road were not there so whenever he woke up every morning he walked out of his house the first thing he would see was this countryside as well as the mill well yes. uh, i'm going to be venturing further into the shire a little later in the program yes. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that but can you take me inside yes i can Brilliant. I'll just show you the pond, which was dredged last winter, and it's now our pride and joy because it's back to its original size, while a year ago it was just reeds and nothing more. And now we have ducks, so I need to get a few bolts out and then put my weight against it. And here we are. Oh, this is beautiful. We're looking at a, a really tranquil mill pond, tiny little ripples across the surface, Reeds growing, trees shooting up. This is extraordinary, Irene. Do you ever catch your breath thinking about yes, where well, all of this is? Or do you just take it in your stride now because you're here every day? No, and... I must say, I, whenever I come here in the morning to check our life belt over there, I always think I'm really lucky. 
to be able to just walk out here and see this. Because also, all seasons, it's beautiful. We now see the trees changing, but in the winter, last winter, when we had the snow here, and there was ice on the water, and then a bit of snow, and you could see the pattern of the fox, you know, where he'd been walking over the ice. You know, those little things make it feel so rural. You wouldn't expect to see a chimney shooting out of a, of a water mill necessarily, would you? What, what does that tell us about the mill itself? Well, it, it tells you that the mill had quite an industrial past because it is indeed a very odd feature for a water mill because a water mill should be really romantic with a water wheel, preferably on the outside, turning around so you can see it. The problem was the mill is along the River Cole, which, although it is a river... Um, doesn't always carry that much water and especially in summertime when there's not a lot of rain there wasn't enough water so in the 1850s they put in a steam engine so that's why we have this rather um, industrial look so the significance of of this mill and and the reason for its preservation was that to do with its with its role in birmingham's industrial revolution as opposed to anything else exactly exactly the mill was in an absolute dire state in the 1960s and there were proposals to demolish it however the 1960s early 70s is also that period when we in england even though i'm dutch but in england there was this growing awareness that there is more to history than historic houses big properties there is an industrial history that we had to be proud of this mill was very much birmingham's industrial part birmingham was a big metal town in the 18th century it grew tremendously fast and the mill played an important role in it it wasn't always a flour mill for a large part of its history it was an industrial mill and the other connection uh, or the, the, its claim to fame is that the, the mill was rented and used by Matthew Bolton which is one of the first sort of entrepreneurs and industrialists in, in Birmingham and he so worked with James Watt didn't he? he Many did, people he did James Watt yes, steam engine, yes they did so Matthew Bolton before he actually met James Watt and before they worked together um, he was here and he used this mill to produce sheet metal this mill is, is, I think, very important for Birmingham now because it's only one of two working water mills left in Birmingham. The other mill is Newhall Mill in Sutton Way. But once in Birmingham, there were certainly over 50 water mills. All this past has completely vanished. There are only two mills left. And of the windmills that were once in the city, a bit over 30, none of them are here. So this mill, for that reason alone, I think is really, really important. So we're standing looking down on a giant water wheel at the moment. And Irene, you are now opening the second set of sluice gates. And Irene's. Oh, wow. And the water wheel is starting to turn as the water comes in through the sluice gates with some force. The water wheel started to turn almost immediately. Irene's just closed the sluice gate again there and locked it. It's it's a relentless beast, isn't it? When it starts to turn, it's uh, it's almost intimidating, really, to stand here and, and watch it, given its size and, and power. Yes, what I really like about it is, because we get quite a lot of school children visiting as well, and, of course, they are all very savvy with computers and with everything, you know, but they're all still impressed with when the wheel starts working, and that is very nice to I, see. I don't know how you couldn't be impressed actually <laughs> watching that. We're now on the current, uh, the new line of the Coalbank Rose, which would have been completely different if we could take you back in time 100 years ago. 
the road would have not known any any traffic like it has today. A hundred years ago, we'd have been walking down a country track and we'd be turning right onto White Green Road. And where, I suppose, Wayne Dixon, you're a museum assistant, but you're also the resident Tolkien expert, we are maybe treading the path that Tolkien might have trod as he tried to get we, into the mill, much are, yes, to the uh, chagrin of the millers who had to chase him out all well, the, the time. At the moment we're looking over the fence at the mill, which is, uh, you can see uh, from here, you've got a good viewpoint of anyone coming in from the front gate, which you'd be aware of the white ogre trying to, to chase out uh, the young boys, the, young, the white ogre being George Andrew Jr., the miller's apprentice at that time, and he was always the one that Tolkien feared the most. The old chap with the big black beard tended to be quite easygoing. If you got caught by the white ogre, you knew you'd have to make a quick exit. And where we're going now, if we go back in time, we'd actually be trespassing onto the black ogre's land or the farmer of Stairhole Farm. Um, and a lot of this land tended to be places where Tolkien would find um, himself getting into a lot of adventures, which uh, usually involves him uh, running scared from the number of the ogres that he had. <laughs> um, and what, more than one occasion, he would have been caught by the black ogre when paddling in the, in the brook. I love the idea of the, the white ogre and the black ogre. I mean, you're, you're referring to this fantastical imagination that he had. Yes, yes. Is there no doubt at all that it's, it's this area, it's the years he spent here around Serhole that really stimulated that imagination? It was. Uh, the most important thing to stress was this was the first contact that Tolkien had with the English countryside. Uh, he was born in South Africa, and this was the first place where these little rivers and streams, which had become so important to him, was the place where he found them first. So the trees that he used to like, the first trees that he had, we had on the side of the pool uh, a willow tree that he would have climbed. And it was such a tragedy for him when the willow tree was cut down and that stuck with him for the rest of his life. But it was this four years, he called them the four years, the shortest seeming but the most formative, that really meant that he could just have these carefree moments of just playing. And it would have just been such a wonderful place to have been. If you can imagine it, without any of the houses around, you would just be in a little rural hamlet. Wayne, you said he came from South Africa. Why was that? How did he end up here at Sayhill? The South African heat didn't agree with him and his younger brother, so he was brought back by his mother Mabel for uh, what was originally intended to be a holiday. They were meant to be joined by their father, Arthur. Unfortunately, he was taken ill uh, with rheumatic fever. And by the time they'd had the news uh, that was about to go back to, to join him, he'd sadly passed away, and it meant that Tolkien's mother was left now living in King's Heath with, with her family, the Suffields. So she then moved to find an affordable property and found one here in, in Serhole. And it was really here that a lot of his early passions, which would be so important to him, were, were founded. In particular, his love of language. And one of the important names that comes across is a Gamji. In this part of the world, a Gamji would have referred to a cotton wool ball, which was invented by Dr. S uh, Joseph Sampson Gamji. So the local children would be calling for, for a Gamgee if they had need of a bandage. But all those kind of words crept into Tolkien and remembered them because it was such a fascinating way of speaking because he just came from a different class, a different world from some of the locals, and it really started to ignite that passion. What strikes me constantly, Wayne, as we walk around this area is the, the mosaic of urban and suburban and rural. They're almost like little postage stamps joined onto each other, aren't they, in these small they are, areas? Yes. We're coming to the end of the housing estate that we've been walking through now, off the busy road that we were walking along. And again, we're about to come to, 
to some sort of paragon of rurality, really, aren't we, in, in such a small area? We are. If you look at the maps of the area, it does seem a story of loss. But to actually look at the maps and see these little patches in Tolkien's word, islands of paradise, there's, some of them are still here. The one we're going to now would be mostly bog, which hasn't changed that much since Tolkien would have known it. The trees have got older, they've grown up a bit more, it's dried out a little more, but it still would have been this little hidden away dell, as you'd have known it, a place where it's good to have picnics and adventures with a mind full of fairy stories. And it just really hasn't changed a great deal. There's houses built upon the fields, but the places that Tolkien would have played, some of them still are remarkably uh, as they were. Shall we go and see some of them? We shall, yes. Brilliant, lead the way. Walking deeper into Moseley Bog, it's so easy to see why Tolkien would have found inspiration here. The density of the foliage feels like it's wrapping around you the further inside you get. Joining me in Moseley Bog is the reserve officer for the bog, uh, Francesca Jarvis-Rouse, and also Birmingham City Council's planning archaeologist, uh, Dr Mike Hodder. Thanks very much Thank for you. joining me here. Francesca, what a magical place this is. It is really fabulous, especially in the heart of the city. You know, you couldn't ask for more, really. I feel like I should be whispering here. It's almost, uh, I don't know, spiritual, isn't it, really? It does have a strange atmosphere, and it's even more emphasised when you're on your own as well, and especially when the light starts to change at dusk. That's my favourite time, because all the shadows start lengthening, and it's really magical. And dawn's pretty fabulous as well. Yeah, well, I, I bet it is. I mean, even now, you know, we can see the dappling of the light as, yeah. as we walk on the ground. We're well, lucky, you know, it's such a beautiful day today. It is beautiful. But this is beautiful in all weathers, I, I It guess. is, and all seasons, and that's, people say, what's your favourite? time or what's your favorite bit and I'm just like there isn't because each time you come it changes and even day to day week to week there'll be something slightly different Um, and that's why we get so many regular repeat visitors because it's great. Were the trees always so dense you know did it has it always looked like this or have or have you had to cultivate it over the years? No what's happened is um, the wildlife just took it on three years ago and it's about 11 hectares of wet woodland with fen species and over the years as it's had minimal management the trees have encroached and any wet area, any wet habitat will naturally turn into a woodland. So actually what we're trying to do is manage for the more sensitive species, such as um, the wood horsetail and the wood sorrel. You mentioned wood horsetail. I mean, that's that's prehistoric, isn't it? That's, it is, it is. Um, and it was it's wonderful. It's quite something to have it here. Yeah, and it's, it's so unnoticeable actually without somebody pointing out or unless you know it yourself it's quite a delicate floaty kind of um, plant and there's loads of different varieties of horsetail themselves but this one is quite unusual and especially in a city um, and we've got little bits of sphagnum moss and little little bits that shouldn't really be here in the heart of a city but have kind of remnants of what it used to be basically well you talk about the the ancient plants that are here and what a what an unusual thing it is to have them right in the middle of a, of a city centre, Francesca. I suppose that's a perfect moment to bring Mike in as our, as our resident archaeologist here, because of course, Mike, it's, it isn't just the ancient plants that have used this site and taken advantage of it. Humans that, have that, been here that's for right, many, yes. many like, like, like every years. piece of the English landscape, what we see around us is a result of people's use and management of the land over thousands of years. And we've also got archaeological remains of people using this site 3,000 years ago. 3,000 yeah, years ago? that's right. Yeah, we have a, 
uh, a type of site that is normally next to sources of water. Indeed, that's the case here. The site we're just walking up to is right next to a stream, the Cold Bath Brook, that runs through the bog. And this site dates to the Bronze Age. It dates between 1500 and 1000 BC. And it's a burnt mound. If we step off the path and get a bit closer to the, now, yes, onto the, to the stream the here. Edge of the stream. Right, now, on this site, you can see we're actually standing on the burnt mound now, and you might be able to see, in fact, some of the burnt stones beneath our feet. Uh, you can see them just oh, here. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. Just there. Yes, they're kind of the, slightly buried in the earth, aren't right, they? But the they've got the... They've got the... Very ju- angular the ju- yes, again. that's right. Yeah, you can appreciate, I think, the, yeah. the, the, the light colour of them being uh, yeah. angular break. Oh, yeah, Francesca's just... So uh, what were they used for? Million-dollar question. Yeah, million-dollar question. Yeah, right. Burnt mounds are, are very numerous in other parts of the country as well, and they've usually been explained as the remains of a cooking process. Where the stones were heated up and dropped into um, a container of cold water to boil it, often when the site for excavated a pit or a trough is found. Another explanation of these sites is that not actually to do with cooking, but to do with bathing. Really? And we're actually looking here at prehistoric steam or sauna baths or no sweat baths. Yeah, That's yeah. incredible. Yeah, yeah. So Bronze Age human beings were giving themselves saunas in Moseley Bog? Exactly, yeah. yeah. People were having <laughs> sauna baths in Moseley 3,000 years ago. So... Here in Birmingham, in the 21st century, people out there, not very far away, we can even hear a siren now, just despite the fact that it feels like we're in the middle of the countryside, people are paying a fortune to go to gyms and hotels and spas for their saunas, when they could just be coming and having a dip here <laughs> in well, Mosley Bog, so well, long they, as they, they heat they, their stones up. They can't up. do it now, but they would have been able to do 3,000 years ago, but it, it's been out of use for some time now, but yes, indeed, that's what would have been happening. I'm moving now into a different part of Moseley Bog. I'm moving to an area called Joy's Wood, which is named after Joy Pfeiffer. She led a campaign to preserve the bog when it was up for redevelopment in the 1980s. And with me is her husband, Alan Pfeiffer, and her daughter, Gabby. Thanks so much for joining me here. This must be a very, very special area for you, Alan. It's special for a number of reasons, really. In the 1940s, when I was a lad... Me and my little buddies used to play down here. Terrify frogs and all that stuff, you know, the things that little boys do. And, of course, it's special because when we lived around here and my kids were born, they used to play down here as well. They used to go with them sometimes. And, Gabby, did you used to do the same, find trees and terrify frogs? Um, Yes, and just get really, really muddy. (laughs) We were just always covered in mud. Gabby, do you remember that time? Do you remember your mum campaigning? Very clearly, because I was a... Mm. <laughs> belligerent 16 year old at the time and I actually do remember the point at which the leaflet came to the door from the school saying that this was being planned and they'd King heard Ed- about yes. yeah, King Edwards King and they'd heard about these plans and she literally just picked up this leaflet and said this is not going to happen I've got to do something about this and I, I kid you not she got straight on the phone asking people what do I do how do I and I was like wow this is my mum she was just my mum, you know. <laughs> when you're 16, you think that they don't do anything but cook your dinner and wash your clothes. And I, it was pretty amazing, actually. The petition swelled to 12,500 signatures. Now, at that time, it was the largest petition that had ever been presented to the council, by far. In those days, it was knocking on every door in the area. You did it on foot. 
and to do 12,500 signatures in, in a month is just incredible. It's Even a lot of shoe leather, isn't oh, it? Yeah. <laughs> she was always smiling and laughing and she, she just engaged people and they just found her very delightful. So she could persuade them to do what was needed. And um, she had councillors, senior people in the council and the council leader coming down here and they're all in their wellies and they're all getting soaked to the skin because it's pouring down. Mm-hmm. And they've all got smiles on their faces. And they all say, this is lovely. This is what we used to do when we were kids. And where do you do it anymore? You know, well, here. You see, there was nowhere else in the area you could do that stuff. So eventually the planning committee decided they weren't going to allow such an extent of building on on the far side of the bog. And ultimately, they were persuaded to purchase a strip of land to act as a buffer zone from the... It was pretty incredible. And I remember thinking, oh, great, I can have my mum back now, you know. (laughs) But no, it never ends, does it? There's always more to be done. There's always more to develop. There's always, you know, more publicity. And, um, yeah, but it was pretty amazing. And you you say there's always more to be done. I mean, this is the other fascinating thing about what Joy started, Mm. because the urban wildlife movement really was kick-started, wasn't it, by this campaign? Before this one kicked off and had all the publicity, nobody realised they'd got a wildlife site in their backyard and they started to look around and they found all this stuff, which was a revelation, especially to the wildlife trusts that uh, existed only in the countryside, which was where wildlife was only supposed to exist. Nobody had given a thought to having wildlife in the cities and what it could do for people. I mean, you come down here and, you know, if you've had a stressful day, you spend half an hour in here and you're, you're, you're reborn, you know. So that was a, it was a revolutionary thing to do. And from there, the urban wildlife movement began in this country and since has travelled to other countries. Alan, tell me how this part of the bog became Joy's Wood. Once the woodland had become established and Joy's work had uh, been recognised... There was one of one of Joy's main supporters, a lady called Liz Horton, wanted to apply for, um, you know, an honour for her. I said to her at the time, uh, to Liz, and uh, Joy's very, you know, very unwell, and I don't know how long these things take to get accolades and stuff, but it might be too late by the time it, you know, it comes along. She had a, a rare autoimmune disease called Churg-Strauss vasculitis. Normally, this kind of autoimmune thing has a very bad effect on kidneys. Now, it didn't happen with that, with that with Joy. It actually started to destroy her lungs. She was on oxygen all the time. And I suddenly had a thought, well, we've got to do something more immediate than that. And there's an area of woodland there with no name. Why don't we call it Joy's Wood? And I proposed this to one or two local naturalists in the area and activists. And they all thought it was a brilliant idea. Um, and uh, that was agreed to. We thought it was quite appropriate, and a short name like Joy. Everybody's going to remember it. And because of the the Tolkien connection, which you obviously do know about by now, it sounded kind of fitted in with the kind of names you'd find in a Tolkien-esque setting, you know. So it was perfect, really. She knew nothing about it. We kept it from her. She was too poorly to really get involved in any of that at that time. On the very day when we were going to make the, uh, you know, the presentation to her, um, she uh, she was so ill she didn't even want to get up. And uh, we, I, I asked her grandson, who she was very close to, to uh, you know to go and persuade Grandma to. 
get up and I'll help her to get dressed and we'll, we'll get her over there. There's something going on up to, uh, over, over at the bog, but she doesn't know what it is. And eventually we got her across here and there was lots of people here who we'd, we'd invited. And I think it actually happened in this... It I think did. it happened in this field it here. I remember field. it very yes. clearly. <laughs> but at that time, and it how was did the, she react? Because as you she say, she staggered. didn't know anything about no, this. No, she was absolutely staggered. As she was nearing this, she could see people buzzing around. And when she got into the field itself, in the she, oh my God, are all these people here? She said, are they here for me? She hadn't got a clue what was going on. Are they here for me? And I said, well, you'll have to wait and see. So. <laughs> And she just couldn't believe what was going on. And um, luckily, it was a nice day. And um, it's, it's a very special place. And she was a very legacy. Sh- yeah, I don't think absolutely. too many people can say they've got a legacy like this. You know, yeah. that was left really for them by their mum. I think it's pretty That's amazing. Right.